Good morning, happy Sabbath. Of course, it's been quite some time since Christy and I have been here, <clears throat> and uh, we're going to share a little bit of the journey that we've been on the last couple of years. Uh, however, I did not feel uh, that the Holy Spirit was asking me to make the whole worship period to talk about my health. One thing that's happened uh, since I've seen y'all last, God has uh, added to my ministering on Sabbath an extra little part where my wife has been able to come up and share a little thought right beforehand to try to get our hearts ready to receive. It may not, I, uh, may not always have a direct application to what I'm going to preach, but it just helps us sort of like singing a hymn beforehand. And I'm going to ask her to come up right now. And she also will be available after fellowship dinner to talk to y'all about this two-year cancer uh, journey that we've been on and some of the things that she has researched and done that certainly have helped us to get where we are today. And we'll talk about that a little bit more here in just a few minutes. Good morning. Good morning. Glad to see everybody this Sabbath. Um, the thing I'm sharing today is kind of like what I mentioned right before my prayer request <clears throat> about being thankful and grateful. Amen. And um, we have a little table in the back of our church where people can bring books that if you're through with them and you want to share them with somebody else. And somebody had left this little book. It's called 1,000 Gifts on the table back there. And I thought, oh, that looked kind of interesting. And I just read, you know, you always look it over, read the little piece on the back. And so I took it home and I finished reading it the other day and I'm about to start reading it again. It has been such a life-changing thing for me. Um, in this book, this lady was dared to write down, journal a thousand gifts, you know, things that God had done for her, or just, you know, everyday things. And I I have started that. I am on 156 I've gotten written down so far towards my 1,000. And seeing the things that you can be thankful for, you know, she talks about seeing beauty in the ugly, you know, the bad things that are happening in our lives, finding the things to be thankful for in that. And, um, I I would love thinking about getting this for each of my my daughters for for Christmas because it's the way the woman writes is definitely what I consider the the younger minded generation would understand. But um, she is a a farmer's wife. They live in Canada, but she's also a writer, and they have seven children. And when you can go into a home with a pile of laundry from seven kids and muddy footprints all over the house and see those things and still find the beauty and the the way to be thankful and all that. It's just been, like I said, a, a blessing to me, and it's a challenge that I am presenting to other people to get yourself, you know, Walmart. Little journals are not that expensive at all and start recording a thousand gifts. And when you are intentional about looking for things to be thankful for, it really changes your perspective. And I mean, there are days I, I set out with, okay, I'm going to do a certain each day, a certain number each day, but it really, you know, that's my accountant brain thinking, okay, well, if I do this many each day, but I mean, really just doing it as God brings it to you. She keeps a journal beside her everywhere she goes so that when it comes to her, she can write it down. And, and I was looking back, I knew there was a day when we were talking about answered prayer the other day, or today, I knew there was a day recently when I had three prayers answered in one day, and so I thought, didn't I, didn't I put that in there? And well, I had just written down, God answered three prayers in one day, and I'm like, why didn't I write down what the prayers were? Because now I'm trying to remember what they were. And I said, <laughs> okay, note to self, from now on, I'm going to write, be more specific about what it is. So anyway, that's my experience, and I'm, I'm putting that challenge out to y'all, too. If you have opportunity to get the book, it's an awesome book. But if not at least start the challenge and get your little notepad and start keeping up with a thousand gifts because I think you'll find that when you hit a thousand, you'll, you'll be addicted and you'll probably keep on going. Well, it's been, like I said, it's been a while since we've been here and there's a sad sort of like reason for that. Uh, but, you know, God is in control and He's the one that... Uh, is on the throne and, and watching everything that takes place. But uh, 
the reason that we've been gone for so long is that about just a little more than two years ago, <clears throat> I discovered that I had a second stage case of large B cell lymphoma. This is my second time to have lymphoma. 30 years ago, I had Hodgkin's disease. 10 months of chemotherapy, and uh, I was healed of that. God had healed me. And this journey started. There we go. I got, I've got signal from the back that I didn't turn the mic on. But uh, this journey began uh, with me finding that out. I had, went, I had gone to the uh, emergency room because my leg had swollen up really badly. Re blood flow down that leg had been restricted by the mass in there. And uh, so I'm going to be speaking more in medical terms. Let me just throw this disclaimer out to start with. We're all believers in Jesus here. We all know that God put all the laws of science, whether biology, physical science, whatever it is, into motion. They came from him. And he also, of course, the Bible shows us many examples where he has the absolute power to supersede those laws anytime he wants to. So a bush that's not on fire can still burn and a Red Sea can be opened up and all those things that we call miracles are nothing for him because he is the author of the scientific world. So I speak in more like in medical terms right now, uh, but uh, I, I do know at the conclusion here that we're here because of God, okay? So I was pretty worried, and um, I still, even at, at 64, I think at the time, uh, Wanted to stay in ministry and be busy uh, here working for the Lord in this lifetime. And I didn't really want to die. But, uh, you know, as we saw the CAT scan report, well, we didn't have a diagnosis. So we had the CAT scan report there. The doctor in the emergency room came to read it to me. And as she sat on the bed and started to read it out to me and I was looking at it, I just stopped her and said, oh, my it looks like my Hodgkin's disease has returned, and I don't have very long to live at all. She said, I'm sorry, but that's what it appears. Well, it wasn't my Hodgkin's disease. It was a, a new lymphoma, and it was large B-cell lymphoma. It advanced, even though it didn't ever get out of the second stage or metastasized or anything. I had quite a lot of pain when it wrapped around the muscle in my back and so forth like that. But the outlook at first was... When I first saw the first oncologist, she said, oh, the type of cancer you have is one of the most common, one of the most curable types of cancer. So that's the way I went into that. A couple of treatments, <clears throat> and I went uh, for a CAT scan and already saw really good results. By the time I took my second CAT scan, I had COVID. And when I got COVID, I got pneumonia really bad, and I went in the hospital for 22 days. So I had that CAT scan just uh, one or two days before I went into the hospital, and it showed that there were mixed results, so that some of the tumors had gone down, but others had appeared. And so I had to wait the 22 days to resume treatment. So by the time I had finished the sixth cycle, which was what we're supposed to take for that, after I finished the sixth cycle, then it wasn't all gone. So I went through 23 radiation treatments. Now, at the same time, when I first was diagnosed and so forth, uh, Christy, my wife, had gotten and just buried herself in everything you can find uh, about natural ways to treat the disease or at least to treat the body so that it can heal. You, because in this uh, type of treatment. When you take chemotherapy, you're healing from what the, ca the cancer has done to you, and you're also healing from what uh, the doctors have done to you when they give you that uh, stuff, because it's terrible. And it does not discriminate between good cells and bad, even though it's somewhat effective. Uh, you can see that I'm about a third of the man that I used to be. I went from being, hey, for your age, you're still a pretty big old boy, to a little old man pretty much overnight. But that's where I am now but I am still living. And so 
there we were and uh, had that break of 22 days being stuck in the hospital. And after that, as soon as possible, resume chemotherapy. It wasn't enough. 23 radiation treatments, and unfortunately, it still wasn't enough. It was still there. So I had to see a lymphoma specialist at U- University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas and begin a bunch of trips, 50-mile trips, back and forth from our house to Dallas. Um, and he asked me if I wanted to try an immunotherapy, and the concept behind it was really neat, but uh, it had about a 30% chance of working. So it was, it was called CAR-T therapy, CAR-T therapy. So CAR-T therapy had about a 30% chance of working, but it also was going to take quite a toll on your body, and they expected me to be very sick. Well, I wasn't very sick afterwards, but it didn't work. Um, so I tried a cl- clinical trial called bite therapy, and that didn't work either. And so I came to the point where I'd first been diagnosed with a disease that was so curable and so common to the point that we couldn't seem to get rid of it. And uh, the doctor then said, look, I can just go back and give you the chemo we gave you before your CAR-T therapy and stretch you out as long as we can so that you can, uh, you know, make ready for your exit uh, from this world, more or less. He doesn't talk like that, but that was pretty much the message. And uh, so I uh, accepted that, but then... Uh, we had also been interrupted on all our natural uh, attempts also with those 22 days in the hospital and getting back in. There's so much information, it's not easy to find your path uh, because so many people have, have done things so many different ways. Some have, uh, have uh, been healed of cancer without ever taking any medical treatment before and done everything with uh, supplements, herbs, and uh, diet. And others have uh, had support on a natural side that would work along with chemotherapy, and they came out good. But I was at the point where an expert doctor had told me, you know, that the end was very close, and uh, it was going to really pick up speed in advance. And so uh, we tried these two therapies hadn't worked, so he went back to the chemotherapy. We also went back trying to take the path that looked the best for us uh, in the natural way. And uh, after the second dose of chemotherapy, they gave me a PET scan. And the doctor came in with the report in his hand and threw it on the table and said, this never happens. Well, that's an exaggeration, I'm pretty sure, but he said, this never happens. He said, nobody who has had CAR-T therapy like you responds to that chemotherapy like that. You are a miracle. No, we call you the mystery man, and you're going to be the subject of my Thursday morning staff meeting, he said. I said, well, it sounds good. He said, well, it's almost gone. It's almost completely gone. And so I said, that's wonderful. Well, you know, I had all that support. There's a company, I don't know that should name them, I can't say the name of it anyway, in Grapevine, that does have a lot of uh, IV support of things that help the body heal from the damages you get from the disease and the treatments. And so we went back to that and the other things that we had been doing and went through three more treatments. And today, at this point, that cancer is gone. But that's the story that we've been on. But the reason is because God was ready to do that at that time. And he waited until we were out of medical options to show his glory. So this is the second time in my life he's healed me of cancer, and I'm, I'm so proud for that. It has really left some changes to me. I was much younger last time. And from the last time that I healed from cancer, not many more years later than that, I could bench press 495 pounds. But I can't even load a bar up with that much weight in there. Now it's taken me down to actually, actually wearing a size 30 blue jean. I haven't done that since I was in high school, <laughs> early in high school. So that's, that's why we've been gone so long. I did not believe that God wanted me to use the entire 
hour today to go into detail about all those things and make the whole service, the whole sermon about that because uh, we have been on a quest at the Grandview Church uh, for something very interesting. The Lord on New Year's Eve last year, which was on Sabbath, Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve was on Sabbath last year. Christmas was on on Sunday and so was New New Year's Day. We were in Sabbath school, and toward the end of Sabbath school, a man asked a question, and he said, how does a person love God? How do we come to love God, to love Jesus? You know, the Lord gave me an entire year's worth of ministry and and sermons on that spot. When I heard that man ask that, do you know that there were many people sitting there because of our denomination, who could have answered a lot of questions about any concept that we believe in, those 28 fundamental beliefs. Very many learned people there. Nobody, we didn't have time, but nobody really had an answer. How do you fall in love with a spirit God that you cannot see? Well, we operate in this life with the five senses and anything that's supernatural outside of that is not easy for us because we're not born spiritual beings. That is something that has to develop. And we understand that that's natural part of the process as Paul did. First Corinthians 2.14, what did he say? He said, for the nat- by, uh, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. And we realize even when we start a Bible study with someone, the first thing we have to do is make certain that the person taking the Bible study can be comfortable trusting the Bible. And there Paul tells us, before the Holy Spirit comes into play, the things you can read in the Bible just sound like gibberish in some, in some places. Begin reading at the very first part of the Bible. It's not difficult to understand what's written there about the creation. It may be difficult to believe it, but it's not hard to understand. But then if you start with the three angels' message and say, I I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth and to every kindred nation and tongue, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. What do you think that looks like to somebody when they read that the first time? You know what it means, because you've done the Bible studies. You know that's the first angel's message. And you know what it's referring to. But the natural man, the person who has not responded to the Holy Spirit is going to see foolishness there. And neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. So uh, we were lucky, we were blessed that we're talking to a room full of believers and we didn't have to establish the validity of the Scriptures to get started. So we said this, wouldn't the New Testament and the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, be the place to start to find out about Jesus? Because we did come to the conclusion, if you want to love somebody, you're going to have to get to know them. You can't just be in love with a stranger that you don't know anything about. Isn't that correct? So you have to establish a relationship. And we thought the four Gospels there are almost all in red. There's a lot more red letters there than there are black letters in there. And why is that? It's because Jesus is speaking. And we will find Him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John more than any other place. And so what do the Gospels have for us? Well, before we got into them, we also decided that uh, I took this from one of my favorite preachers, but when I heard him say it, it made a lot of sense. A relationship with Jesus is kind of like a three-legged stool. Usually I bring one for an illustration, but it's a type that's got a little skinny back that comes up there and it's hard to haul in the car, so left it home. But a three-legged stool, and why is that? Three legs, four would be more stable, but three legs will hold you up. But two won't, will they? Or one will not, right? So we consider what would those three legs of that stool, what would they represent? And we, we come to the conclusion that one of them would be Bible study. But we need to realize, friends, Bible study is not for the purpose of showing the rest of the world, the rest of the people in other churches, how right we are. Bible study is not there for you so that you can win an argument and feed your own ego. 
Bible study is there for us to get to know Jesus Christ as a friend. And that's what its purpose is. So often we know so much about the Bible, but have we known the author of the Bible? The Bible tells us, Peter tells us, the Holy Ghost is the author of the Bible. How well do we know him? Bible study is an important part of worshiping and coming to know and making friends with a spirit God. We begin to know about Jesus, and what we find out about Jesus causes us to know Him personally, where we can indeed love Him. What else? Prayer. Prayer is not the Santa Claus list, where we come and make out everything we want and need from God. The Bible tells us clearly that He knows everything we want and need. And most of the time, He holds back from the things we want, so we won't kill ourselves, you know, or injure ourselves. In different kinds of ways. He answers in the way that's best for us. But prayer should be our way to communicate with him. He wants us to speak with him as a friend. Some people have even gone to the extremes of sitting a chair there and pretending that Jesus is sitting there. And that may sound silly, but if it helps you, if it helps you to think about God as someone instead of something, then do it. Prayer is the second leg. The third part of that is something that is as important as the other two. That is sharing what you know about Jesus, what he has done for you with someone else. If you try to make it on the other two, and if you try to do, sit in that stool without that leg, it won't, it won't stand up. You yourself might get really intelligent, but friends, I'm going to tell you something. Your relationship with God will dwindle. You may find yourself living a worldly lifestyle if you do not use all three and you'd help other people to find their way. I had wanted during these two years a, a much more extensive ministry where I'm more in contact with life on the streets and so forth. But I was always too sick. But do you know, during those two years, God has given me many preaching opportunities, at least in our district there, and my pastor uses me, I think, more than anybody uh, as guest speaker. And I'm busy preaching somewhere most Sabbaths. And, a lot of, and, I, and during that time, you wouldn't believe how sick I've been. And yet on Sabbath, when I was go- to preach, I could make it and do it. And he was with me, and he always is with me. And friends, we have reason today in our church You can't get so many people to come to prayer meeting on Tuesday night, but we have expanded prayer meeting. My wife created a group text uh, there to where anybody who wanted to pray for the same items that were asked for and prayed for in prayer meeting can be a part of that. And how many we got now, honey? There are 38 people, is that including us that go or? Also, concluding everybody that attends and everybody that's on the prayer. Okay, there are 39 people praying for those same things and people put on there uh, when God answers, they put on there what how their prayer had been answered. And, you know, it's right there before you. We've had a whole year nearly that we've been working on answering this question. How does one love God? And this is one of the ways also when we see and don't just go in one ear and out the other and forget about it later. But we see it written down there how God has answered prayers that we've put before him. And, of course, everybody there has prayed so much for me. And they've been so close to me and Christy on this journey. And when they were able to see that, that the doctor said this is a miracle and he did not expect for the cancer to respond that way and be completely gone, um, it's just been a great lift for both of our churches there. So... We've, we established that in a relationship we would need those three things with God. And so we began to look in the New Testament, in the first uh, four books, the Gospels, and we looked at things like the parables to start with. So we talked a little bit about in Sabbath school today about some of the parables. And the first one I started out with was in Matthew, the 13th chapter, and you can find it in other places, but that's the one I like to go to. That is the parable of the sower. 
And you'll remember what happened there. A man was out casting seed into the ground there. And some of it fell in the path. Some fell on stony ground. Some fell on uh, ground that had thorns. And then some fell on what was called good ground. Friends, you'll remember the whole, the, what the symbols represent and what we learn. But let me tell you something. God said something there that's left unsaid. But he did it so when we seek for him with all our hearts or we speak, seek for him diligently, like he says for us to, then we find out. What is there in the parable of the sower that's not really written there that does come out? It's this. We remember that that seed represents the Word of God. The sower is the witness, right? And this is what the symbols mean. The fowls that came and devoured that that fell upon the path is where Jesus said the heart that does not, the soul that does not understand the Word or rejects the Word, then Satan comes and snatches it back before anything can happen. No change is made in the heart. Okay. Not hard to understand. That that sprouted in stony ground, tried to make its roots down, but it's so rocky and everything, it couldn't continue to get deep enough to where the moisture was. said when the sun came out, it withered and died. What did that represent? He said that's those that hear and they accept it with gladness to begin with. But then when persecution or trials come for the word's sake, they leave it behind. They expected to have no trouble, that God would never let them have trouble. Let me tell you, friends, there's no God like that. The God in heaven is going to allow and be in favor of trials and pain and things that are going to be in your life. Otherwise, we'd forget about him like we always do. Prosperity that's hit this nation has made us a godless nation again. And we need those trials. If there's been anything good about this two-year journey with cancer for me, it's an answer to, to my prayers that I could draw nearer to God. Unfortunately, my hard head, it means I have to go through these kind of things for that to happen. But this dirt uh, represented those who expected everything to be okay, and then, well, I tried that, but it didn't work. Third was those that got choked out by the thorns. The seed came up, probably made it a little farther, but then the thorns choked it out or the weeds choked it out. And so it didn't matter. This this is the people that Jesus said, here's the word. They also are excited about it. And they go along, everything's going fine for a while, but then they begin to worry. Begin to worry about what's going on around them, what's going on around the world. And they start lusting after the dis, what he called the deceitfulness of riches. Deceitfulness of riches. You understand? And you see them, you think that something's going to make you happy. And I'll tell you, I've never been rich, but I can still tell you it's not going to work. You see rich people all the time on your TV set. Now, Christian, I don't own a TV set. We do, it's not hooked to a signal. We use it for DVD or whatever. But if we did, you'd find a whole bunch of entertainment people and so forth like that that are some of the richest people in the world and they're some of the most miserable people in the world. And in this life, because of the way God made us, we were talking earlier, and made us have a desire to gather together like we are today. It's natural for us to want to help other people when we come to find out that trying to please ourselves doesn't get us happiness. I think it was Albert Schweitzer or so who said that if you want true happiness in life, go find somebody less fortunate that needs your help and, and help them. And next thing you know, you'll be closer to being happy about anything. But happiness on this earth only is temporary, isn't it? You can't be happy all the time. And it's getting worse. And the acts of the devil are beginning to be more easier to see all along. He's losing his ability to, to, to deceive in some ways for people who have a relationship with God because the world is not having as much to offer anymore because the world is just about, just about can't take much more of it. And if the Lord's not coming soon, I just don't know what in the world is going on. The parable of the sower comes to a finale. It says some fell on good ground. It sprung up and it produced some 30, some 60, some 100 times more than what it put in there. Listen, friends, what you're left with is a misunderstanding if you don't know the Lord Jesus. 
You may think that means that there's good people out there on whom the Word falls on and they produce fruit because of that. Listen, the Bible also says, not in one place, but two places. The Old Testament, then quoted by Paul, there is how many righteous? None. There is none that is righteous. No, not one. The fourth people there, you have to remember this. Gardener. I know that y'all do a lot in the greenhouse, but just imagine the plot of ground for a moment. You know good and well that you didn't move over there and say, you know, this looks like it's a pretty fertile place. I'm going to throw me some seeds out here and see what happens. It don't work that way. No, friends, you'll find that good ground or these good people who are able to receive the word and produce fruit from it, what they have been was that hard path with a lot of rocks and weeds in it. It took the plow and the pain of inserting that plow into that earth and breaking that heart up to make it good ground. In other words, these people have had the right circumstances in their lives to come along to make them able then to be right for God. It's not that they were just good, but it's because they'd experienced enough in the other stages somewhere. That's why there's no way... To be judgmental about people, friends, there is none righteous, no, not one. And we're going to talk when we get to our main subject today about that very thing, about how we look at ourselves and how we look at other people. So we went there, say, for that parable. We talked about that. And um, uh, we talk about others. And we talked about like the ten virgins and so forth. And we find... Very bone-chilling words there in that parable. You know, in the ten virgins, we find the five foolish came back and knocked on the door. And they, they knocked and wanted to come in. And what did it say the bridegroom said unto them? I never knew you. I tell you, I don't know you. Jesus tells us Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, he said, uh, not Everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those that have done the will of my Father. Now, I remember being a young child in Seventh-day Adventist church, and they people around wanted me to think that what the Scriptures were saying there, that the Sabbath keepers were the ones that were doing God's will. And everybody else wasn't keeping the Sabbath. And so that's, but friends, that's not it at all. Do you remember what he says? They have a great argument. They say, wait a minute. We have done this, this, and this in your name. You know what they're talking about? Casting out devils, raising sick people up off the the sick bed and so forth. Those are good things. They also, in that case, are categorized by the prophet Isaiah when he says, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. And there Jesus will say, I never knew you. Aren't those bone-chilling words? I never knew you. Again, we understand from his own words, he's talking about it's the relationship, friends. We have this hang-up about faith without works is dead. Of course faith without works is dead. Because works accompany faith. But works cannot get you to heaven. We talked about Luke 15. We were talking about it in Sabbath school a little bit earlier. We talked about the, the, the lost sheep, the parable of the lost sheep. Is there something there that we could overlook? I think there is. Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than what does he say? Ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Find me ninety-nine people who need no repentance. I'd like to see that. I believe the Lord wants us to know without stating it there that there is no such thing as ninety-nine people that need not to repent. Now, I'll tell you right now, sometimes a person who's born into the church and goes through their life living in the, the goodness of the church and trying their best to do good have a more difficult time being converted than a fool that's been out there doing the things that I did when I was younger. 
It's difficult for them because they've been doing all the things you're supposed to do. We are tempted to fight the fight of sin every day, friends. Let me tell you, you'll lose every time. He may be evil, but that adversary of ours is also powerful. He was the greatest created being that God ever created. 99 just people who need no repentance, no such thing. We find out from the parable of the lost coin that someone can be lost in the church. Someone does not know that they're lost. The coin didn't know it was lost. The lamb knew he was lost. Difficult, difficult for people who have always done right, who have, who have wanted to see good and be good. To realize that they are a sinner and need a Savior. They don't realize any of the good that they've done in their whole life was given to them as an ability from the, from the maker upstairs, from, from the Savior. Okay? And so then we talk about the same, same uh, book, Luke 15, the same chapter, right? Those, three, those, three, those two parables are in there, and then the one we call the prodigal son. Let me tell you something. My little headliner before that part calls it the man with two sons. And there's a reason. Both were lost. The younger son went away, easy for us to see. Jesus said he went away to a far-off country with money that his father had given him. Because when he asked for it, the Bible says he divided unto them his living, both of them, right then. Younger one went away and spent it on what Jesus called riotous living. That's Jesus' description of what he did, riotous living. Famine came to where he was, and he found himself feeding hogs, and he was thinking about even eating the hog slop because he was so hungry. And we learn and learn from this part, this first part, and it's very important. What? One of the most important first things is he learned, this is the, we learned that he said to himself, and when the Bible said he came to himself, is what I'm trying to say. He came to himself. He said, how many hired servants in my father's house have plenty to eat, but I am sitting here starving. I will return to my father and I will say to, unto him, Father, I've sinned in thy sight and in the sight of God and am no more worthy to be called thy son. That's a pretty good awakening. That's a whole lot different than, Dad, I'm tired of living your way. Give me my money that you earned and let me have it now. That is a 180 degree turnaround. That's conversion. And the beautiful thing is, it said he made his journey back. He had been practicing that. And we see that God, the, God, Jesus tells us that when the, when the father saw the son yet far off, he ran out to him. You remember, he went to him. And met up with him where he could get to him the farthest away from the house yet. And the young man started into his confession, but before he could ask his dad for a job, he was interrupted as his father called the servants and said, what do you want to put on him? Put the best robe on him. Not, not a good one or one of the ones because he's kind of filthy and everything, and he was, I'm sure. They put the best one on there. And that's Jesus' robe of righteousness that covers our sinful bodies when we confess, friends, when we ask forgiveness. Shoes on his feet so he can go and tell others about the goodness of his father. A ring that tells what family he belongs in. He's restored like nothing happened. He said, kill the fatted calf. And so they begin to make merry. Well, I'm going to tell you, then the older brother came along and he was angry, wasn't he? He asked what it was about. One of the servants said, your brother's returned and your dad has killed a fatted calf. And he wouldn't go in. But what does the Bible says that the dad did? The father went to him. Same as he did the other. He didn't have to go as far, but he had to go to him. Both were lost. Both represent lost in two different ways. Listen to the complaint. All my life I've worked for you. And he tells his dad, not once have I ever transgressed your commandment. What child has ever grown up and not once ever transgressed the commandment of their father or mother? 
There's lie number one. Then he says, I've done all this. You've never even gave a, a small goat for me to make merry with my, my friends. But this thy son, not my brother, but thy son, hath wasted thy living with harlots. Jesus said righteous living. Harlots might have been part of it, but th- he had to change it to harlots and make it as bad as he could make it look. And dad explained to him, as long as you've been here, you're a rich man. You can do everything you want to. Your brother was dead and now he's alive. And it was right for us to make merry. I tell you, there's joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. Isn't that something? If you're outside of God's love, you not have a relationship with him right now. I want you to think about this. You give your life to him today and all of heaven is rejoicing about you. You're that important to God. You're that important. Finally, how do you love God? Let me ask you the question that's in our bulletin today. How many people have ever been forgiven a little? Well, we start out like this. Luke, the seventh chapter, beginning verse 36, begins to tell us a story that there was a man who made a, made a banquet and invited Jesus, and Jesus came to it. Now, what we find out later on in the, in the, in the story is Jesus calls him by name, and his name is Simon. What we find out from some other parts of the Bible is that Simon was a Pharisee, and he also had been a leper, and Jesus had healed him from leprosy. Now, I don't know what you know about the Pharisees, but the Pharisees are supposed to not sin. And the Pharisees also believed that poverty and illness came to sinners and wealth, prosperity and health came to those who were not sinners. So he was in quite a predicament. Either he wasn't a Pharisee, really, or there was some exception for some reason that he could have a leprosy like this. Jesus did heal him, and there he was at his house. And in came a woman. I'm asking you, as you hear me, use your imagination and put yourself in this scene right here. And if I cry, we'll get over it. But I usually can't make it all the way through this part when I see it in my mind. In comes a woman. The Gospel of John tells us this woman is Mary, the the sister of Lazarus. She comes in with a box of perfume that takes about a year's wages to earn. Lots is made about the the expensiveness of of the perfume. Okay. She pours it on the Lord. Friends, see this with your mind. She hovers over his feet and washes the Savior's feet with the tears from her eyes and wipes them dry with the hairs from her head. If you're there, is it making you uncomfortable? If you are there, do you believe what you see? That a woman has had something like that touch her so much that she would do something like that. What would cause a woman to wash the Savior's feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. I don't know if it's the same one, but in beginning of John, the first, uh, John 8, in the first verse there begins a story that tells us possibly she has had some experience like this woman or may even be the same woman. I don't know. But there in, first, in, John, in John 8, we're told that they brought to Jesus a woman that, that did an amazing thing. Committed adultery all by herself some kind of way. Because we don't hear anything about the man. But they brought her to him. And they were so happy that day because they had a question to put before Jesus. And it looked like there was no way out for him. First he ignored them. But they kept on asking him, Teacher, Law of Moses says this woman who was caught in the act is to be stoned. Now, if Jesus says no, he doesn't support the law of Moses, he can't be the Savior that he claims to be. And they they know he's not going to say yes. 
But they, the Lord surprises them when he says, you're right. Stone her to death. And make certain that the first one of you to throw the first stone is the one who has no sin in their life. You heard the story and you think it's over because the guilt that that puts on them causes them all to drop their stones and leave. That's not the end of the story, friends. It's not even the most important part of the story. The Bible says after that, that Jesus, when he saw himself alone with the woman, looked at her and asked her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no one condemned thee? She said, No one, Lord. And he answered, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Listen, I give you the power to overcome the sin that's been bothering you that you haven't been able to take care of on your own. You're not ever going to make it. I give you the power here and... I don't condemn you. What did he say to Nicodemus? God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Paul would say, now there is no condemnation in them that are in Christ Jesus. He is coming back as king of kings, friends, but today he's not in the business of condemnation. He's in the business of restoration, full restoration. He will put a robe of righteousness around you. He will put a ring on your finger to show what family you belong to, the family of God. Shoes on your feet so that you can go and tell others about His goodness. This could cause someone to come and wash the Savior's feet with the tears of their eyes and dry them with the hairs of her head. Experiences like these What a wonderful Savior. Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Man who invited Jesus there to pay him back for healing him from leprosy is standing there and the Lord reads his mind. The Bible says he thought in his mind, if this man were a true prophet, that just blows me away. If this man were a true prophet, he would know what manner of woman it is that's touching him, for she is a sinner. You see the distinction he's made between him and her, himself and her? He evidently is not a sinner, but she is. He deserved to get healed, you see, because of his goodness. No, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so Jesus tells him a parable. He says, I got something to say to you. And Simon says, say on. And he tells the story. He said, there was a man to whom two people owed a sum of money. One owed $200, one $2,000. But neither one of them could pay. And the debtor, frankly, forgave both debts. And he asked Simon, I'm asking you, which of the twain will love him more? Simon says, I suppose the one whom he forgave the most. And Jesus said, you're right. Because you see this woman, he's pointing her out again. Her sins are many. But she has loved much because she's been forgiven much. But those who have been forgiven little, love little. Let me tell you something, friends. I don't know who I'm talking to here. But if you think you deserved to get saved because you've only been so much of a sinner and not like somebody else, you better think again. You'd better think it over again. Because the Savior cannot save under that attitude. Now, I didn't know this from the Bible, but evidently Ellen White says that in the process, the Lord won over the heart of Simon the leper that day, Simon the Pharisee that day too. It doesn't tell us that in the Bible. But something had to happen. Something had to wake him up. Those that are forgiven little. Do you know of anybody that's only been forgiven little, friends? That's the wonder of our Savior. How on earth do we love a spirit God that we can't see? We get to know him. And we find out 
that his love and mercy and grace far exceed his desire to judge. Even though there's a judgment, even though not everyone will make it, he delays his coming. We stay in this world of illness, death, murder, and all the bad things there because he's waiting for more people to get saved. And today, my friends, if you haven't made your peace with God, let me tell you, Make your mind up today. Give it to Him. Don't try to get better first so that you can be uh, more presentable to God. He wants you just like you are. It's not about what you do, friends. It's about who you know and who you know will change what you do. He will give you, according to the Bible, the desire and the ability to become like Him. I used to even preach when I was younger and say, you just do the best you can and God will make up the rest. Let me tell you, He does it all. He does it all. He's a wonderful Savior. He loves you today. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world has to offer, friends. We're going to sing our closing song. It's number 327. George Beverly Shea wrote that big old guy up there singing on the... Billy Graham Crusades, number 327, I'd rather have Jesus. Father, we want to thank you for being that loving God. Lord, as we look in this world of sorrow and hate and sickness and death, Lord, we wonder sometimes, can there really be a loving God? But then, Father, we have your word here, and we get assurance from you in different ways, Lord, that you are indeed uh, an unbelievably... God of love, you, you want to make this place the center of the universe. You want to hold each one of us up high and, and let the universe come and visit and see what you consider your prized possession, which is all of us here today who are saved, Lord. We pray today, Lord, if there's a heart that's lingering and wanting to come to you but feels like they're not worthy, Father, just help them to realize it is you that will give them the the desire and the ability to make those changes in their lives. They don't have to worry about doing that. Just come to you. And so we pray, Father, that you will help us not be tempted to fight the fight of sin, which we cannot win, but to fight the good fight of faith to come to you and reestablish that relationship each day. Asking forgiveness of our sins. And please forgive us, Lord, because we are sinful beings. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. And, Father, we say now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.